Thank you for tuning in to This Week Explained, the intelligence-based geopolitical podcast that keeps you informed about the world around you. We are grateful for your support and appreciate you being a part of our community of informed listeners. We would love for you to share This Week Explained with your friends, family, and colleagues. Together, we can make a difference by sharing knowledge and fostering meaningful conversations. So, what are you waiting for? Help us grow our community by sharing This Week Explained with your loved ones. My bulky blender was such a pain to use, I ended up hardly ever using it at all. But the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender makes blending so easy and convenient, I use it just about every day. Blendjet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. It lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C cord. Best of all, Blendjet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. With over 30 plus colors and patterns to choose from, there's a Blendjet 2 to complement just about any style. I absolutely love the Lisa Frank edition. What are you waiting for? Go to Blendjet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code ANALYTICS12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender. Go to Blendjet.com and use the code ANALYTICS12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. You are now listening to This Week Explained. Hello, and welcome to This Week Explained, the independent geopolitical podcast that tackles all the major global events. We're glad that you're here as we bring you all the insights and analysis on what's happening around the world. As always, I'm Tiana with Curvin as my co-host. Together, we'll help you understand the complexities of our dynamic, ever-changing world. Before we get to the rundown, I would love to give a shout out to one of our Canadian listeners. His name is Caleb. And he sent a message through Spotify letting us know that he's spreading the message of our little podcast around Canada. And we really appreciate that message, Caleb. Thank you so much. Right, Kervin? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you oh, yeah. very much. <laughs> now let's get to what's on the agenda this week. All right. We're uh, going to do Russia-Ukraine, as always. Uh, then we'll get to the other big conflict. That's Israel-Hamas. Um Iran put out a message saying that time is up that was most likely directed towards Israel and a call for World War III. Um, Well, guess what? Terrorism is back, although it never really left. Uh, We saw a few terrorist acts this week alone. It's kind of like the war on drugs, you know? Yeah, it never... They acted like they did something, but they didn't do anything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the 90s, they're like, we won it. We did it. 2000s came along and we said, nah, we're going to keep doing this. (laughs) 
uh, we had Polish elections. You know, here we like to talk about the elections that are going on because they can change the geopolitical landscape. We'll talk about what those elections will do. Um, and also Putin and Xi had a meeting this week. It was the first time Putin left Russia to go to another large superpower This uh, since he decided to invade Ukraine. So we'll get into what that discussion might have been. Well, let's get right into it. What is the latest coming out of Ukraine? Yeah, so recent reports indicate that Russia has deployed elements from its central military district to reinforce offensive operations in Donetsk. So it's a strategic move, kind of underscores the intensity of the fighting that's going on in the Avdivka region. The situation in Avdivka seems to be particularly volatile. Um can you explain and provide some context on what's happening there and why it's a focal point? Uh, certainly. Uh, Avdivka, is, it's a significant area in the Donetsk region, and it's been a hot spot in this conflict for quite a while now. And that's because it has strategic importance to both countries. Uh, recent developments show that Russian forces are making incremental gains in the region, so they're taking back some parts that the Ukrainian military had pushed back against. Uh, but they are facing, Russia is facing difficulties due to heavy Ukrainian fortifications surrounding that area. Well, what about the Ukrainian side? Have How have they been responding to these Russian advances? Yeah, they've uh, been actively engaging Russian forces, so they are still continuing their counteroffensives. Uh, they repelled a significant number of Russian attacks this week, uh, although as we're getting into these colder months in Ukraine, the frequency of these attacks are decreasing slightly. We've also, uh, Ukraine's initiated their own offensives in regions like Bakhmut and western Zaporizhia. Uh, also, Russian mill bloggers have recently raised concerns about the alleged restriction of information around Russian military failures. So welcome to the show, guys. We've been talking about this for a while. Russia is restricting information. What's a mill blogger? So a mill blogger is, uh, you know, a Russian citizen who blogs about uh, various Russian military tactics, and they're no, they- I, I didn't know. <laughs> That's why I asked. <laughs> so they are. They're really the independent voices of the Russian military, and uh, and including this war in Ukraine. So they do a lot, just like, you know, we're an independent podcast and and we take what, you know, maybe Western countries are saying and we talk about, you know, what they're actually, what's actually going on and try to cut through the misinformation. Some of the mill bloggers are doing the same thing in, in Russia. Uh, one particular mill blogger claimed that Russian forces <laughs> suffered around 1,500 casualties in sep- in September of this year, so last month, uh, and that was just near Bakhmut. That's a significant figure for Russian forces. Well, moving to another angle, <clears throat> excuse me, we've heard reports of Russia's controversial deportation of Ukrainians to Russian territory. So what is the latest on that front? Yeah, Russia's Children's Rights Commissioner did admit to the deportation of millions of Ukrainians. That includes children. Uh, and they moved them to Russia. And that was since the start of the conflict. You know, I think about six or eight months ago, we talked about this, that they were start. those reports were starting to trickle out. Yeah. And, and now they're admitting it. Uh, she did. So the, the Children's Rights Commissioner tried to discredit claims of the deportation that time we talked about it. Um, 
she actually accused Ukrainian authorities of acting against the interests of children. Recent developments, though, suggest that some children are being returned from Russia to Ukraine, and this is through Qatari-mediated negotiations, so we have some good news on that front. Russia also implemented a new border crossing procedure, and that's going to restrict Ukrainians from entering uh, third countries, so they can't they're not going to go to Russia and they're not going to stay in Ukraine. They're trying to restrict them from um, from going to any other country so they can keep them there. So it's an interesting development. Uh, might be linked to security concerns along the Russian border regions. Uh, this change, however, does not apply to Ukrainians entering from the occupied territories. So those Ukrainians can get back into those <clears throat> occupied territories. That's a pretty robust update there. So let's get to the other huge conflict going on right now. What is the update to the war between Israel and Hamas? All right, of course. Uh, So the the conflict between Israel and Hamas that erupted on October 7th, that's following the surprise attack from Hamas, has been now what? We're, We're going on two weeks now. Uh, So the most recent updates indicate that the situation is very dangerous. That's within Gaza, within even Lebanon. Uh, Palestinian terror groups in Gaza, primarily Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, have been firing rockets and mortars into Israel. Uh, Those attacks have targeted both civilian and military areas. The attacks from Gaza into Israel have had a severe impact on the Israeli population, uh, there was a significant number of rocket attacks that have targeted cities. Uh, that includes Tel Aviv, Beersheba, and Haifa. And this is just causing distress and casualties among a plenty of uh, Israeli civilians. And I want to just say that any, any civilian casualties is just a tragedy. Now, in response, the Israel Defense Forces have carried out airstrikes into the Gaza Strip, which is targeting both military – they say it's targeting military and political figures within Hamas. Now, this has raised concerns about the potential for civilian casualties in Gaza. Well, that's a critical concern during a conflict like this, especially given the civilian population's vulnerability in Gaza. So we've also heard about the involvement of other countries in the region. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, more, just more terrible news. Uh, the involvement of neighboring countries is going to continue to be a significant factor in this conflict. Uh, Egypt and Jordan, they're both countries that share borders with the Palestinian territories. They refuse to accept more Palestinian refugees. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has made strong remarks suggesting that the conflict is not just about fighting Hamas, but might also aim to push civilians to migrate to Egypt. What he's saying here is that Israel may be looking to do away with Palestine and make it a full Israeli uh, country. And there's some concern there. Jordan's King Abdullah II expressed a similar stance to uh, to the Egyptian president. He emphasized that there would be no refugees taken in Jordan. So <clears throat> there's a concern that Israel's intentions may go beyond military objectives. Can you explain why these countries are hesitant to accept more refugees? Yeah, I'll go a little bit more in depth to what I was talking about just a second ago. Uh, Egypt and Jordan and Honestly, other all the other Arab countries in the region fear that Israel's actions uh, might aim to force permanent demographic changes in the Palestinian territories. 
but complicate the prospects for Palestinian statehood, the two-state solution. Additionally, there's real concern about the potential for Palestinian militants to enter those countries, particularly Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, and that could pose a direct security threat to Egypt. The situation is undeniably complex and multifaceted. Given these concerns and the ongoing conflict, what are the potential paths forward for Israel, Hamas, and the affected countries? Yeah, right now it's still extremely fluid situation. The key to a resolution lies, I believe, in negotiations and diplomacy. But to get to that point, we kind of need to clarify what Israel's post-conflict plans are. So the Israeli government has to provide reassurances about the return of displaced Palestinians and its long-term intentions for Gaza. At the same time, efforts need to be made to address the deep-rooted issues that have perpetuated this conflict for uh, decades, but also, I would say, even like thousands of years. You get two, right. two groups just um, honestly strongly, historic. Yeah, strongly dislike each other. <laughs> yes, very much so. So what we need to see is diplomacy, humanitarian aid, and quite honestly, an international engagement to fix, to, to find a solution to this. Well, what about the tragedy that occurred at the hospital in Gaza? Both sides came out and blamed the other. U.S. President Joe Biden commented that from what he has seen, the other side, quote, the other side was the culprit, whatever that means in Joe right. Biden speak. I mean, I know we're, uh, you know, in the United States, supposedly we're like firmly in Israel's corner. But what does that even mean? The other right. side. I know you I know <laughs> you have been painstakingly scouring your sources to figure out what really happened because there's so much misinformation out there and so many edited videos trying to push one narrative over the other. Do you have any idea which side this attack could have come from? Well, first, I'll say it's a complete tragedy, no matter. And, and Hamas came out and said 500 civilians have uh, have been killed. That number is now moving around, depending on which side you stand on here, With uh, and, and then viewing misinformation. Some have put it at 50 civilians. Like I said, one is a, tra- is a tragedy enough to you know, call it a humanitarian crisis. Um, it, it's just such a heart wrenching situation. Both sides, Israel and the Palestinian officials are blaming each other. Like you said, for the incident that there's conflicting claims have created quite a complex narrative. Israel is asserting that the explosion was caused by a misfire from the Islamic Jihad group. Well, has Israel offered any proof for that? Well, they, presented some evidence to support the claim. They had intelligence, audio recordings, imagery. They argued that there was no visible signs of craters or significant damage that would result from an airstrike that they would have participated in. They also released audio recordings of a conversation between two Hamas operatives, suggesting that the explosion came from a rocket launch near the hospital, meaning it had to be from the side of Gaza. Now, there are concerns about the authenticity of pictures, videos, and those audio recordings. And it's also important to scrutinize such evidence very, very carefully. On the other hand, Palestinian officials accuse Israel of directly targeting the hospital with airstrikes, right? Right, and they've been very vocal in their accusations. 
Uh, but the situation is further complicated by the denial of responsibility by the Islamic Jihad group. That's the rival to Hamas in the Palestinian area. So the Islamic Jihad denies involvement. Israel points to misfire, and Palestinian officials are adamant it was an Israeli airstrike. With all this uncertainty, it remains very difficult to determine what really happened in that explosion. Exactly. And U.S. President Joe Biden's comments added another layer of complexity. He mentioned that that it appeared to him that, quote, the other side was responsible based on U.S. intelligence. Yep. Biden's statement, I think, is regrettable. Um, Saying the other side did it doesn't help in already strained relations with the other world, with the other, the Arab world. (laughs) Um, And and listen, the U.S. has a strained relation with with most of the Arab world. This isn't helping. I don't like the other side comment. Right. It seems kind of dismissive and just kind of. Oh, the the little tantrum throwers over there yeah. kind of thing. Infantilizing and, kind of. Exactly. And and if you have the intelligence and you know who did it, name it. Don't just say the other side. Right. Be specific. We can't afford to have any vague statements like that. Yeah, he you know, he he definitely should have said something like, you know, from the evidence I saw, it appears Palestinian Islamic jihad rockets misfired right name the, speci- the name the specific terrorist organization he thinks is behind it yeah now in in biden's defense not just that he's old <laughs> should probably not be holding office it's clear that the u.s government supports israel fully right so they're going to lean towards the theory that the attack came from a misfired rocket by palestinian islamic jihad so they They will do that, but they also pointed to a blast analysis suggesting, oh, this was a ground explosion. But as we know, intelligence assessments can be very complex, and this analysis is just one piece of the puzzle. There's ongoing intelligence collection, and it's a very volatile situation. True, yeah. It's not a straightforward matter. I always say intelligence isn't an exact science. Uh, The international community is watching closely. Uh, The United Nations called for a careful investigation. I think that's good. I think an investigation should be held by uh, third parties, not the two people, not the two parties fighting. Um, Now, so many social media accounts have put out misinformation on both sides. Case in point, there's this uh, Israeli influencer account, and he had actually worked on Netanyahu's social media, But he put out a statement right after the hospital explosion saying Israel fired rockets at Hamas terrorists in the hospital. That post was quickly taken down, but we both know the Internet is forever. Uh, The misinformation there was that the account had been falsely attributed to an official Israeli government account. So you saw a lot of pro-Palestinian accounts say Israel uh, took the, the credit for the attack when it was actually just an influencer that said it had happened once again with this podcast right. i want to apologize to future generations cuz when you get to the 2020s in history class i i'm sorry it's going to be a mess well as someone who went through history class in america i can i can tell you right now they will downplay everything <laughs> that they did 
Yeah. Every, oh, it yeah. will be scrubbed clean. We will be completely innocent and absolved <laughs> of everything, but everyone else is going to be at fault. Everyone History else. History is written by the winners. Go America. America. Well, we're not, we haven't won yet, so no. calm down. We haven't even started, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you don't have a definitive answer as for who was responsible. Is that what you're saying? Definitive, no. Um, but I will say there are s- several fairly unbiased accounts on social media that have done an amazing open source intelligence analysis of all information. And they truly believe the misfired mm-hmm. rocket from the, uh, the PIJ, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, is the most likely culprit. Um, I'm going to continue to look at all evidence and try to understand what really happened before we at Oakland Analytics and in this podcast put out any statement saying definitively. Well, let's just stick to the Israeli-Hamas conflict, but discuss Iran's role in the region. This week, Iran posted a pretty ominous statement when Iran's foreign minister issued ominous warnings about the potential for a third world war. What can you tell us about Iran's current role in the conflict? And um, do you agree that we are closing in on a third world war? I think you like might that, know that like, answer. <laughs> yeah, I feel like all these countries are kind of pushing out this rhetoric right now. Yeah, and you know, some analysts suggest we are already in a third war because they, oh. uh, the third world war they see it as a proxy war. Okay. So uh, um, if you don't, it, I'll explain a little what I mean right there in a proxy war. So instead of just major superpowers going at it and fighting each other, those superpowers will have other, um, you know, maybe third world or emerging economies go out and fight each other uh, for them. So that would be a proxy war. That's messed up. It is messed up. Um, It's, it's what I believe Iran is doing right now with Hamas and Hezbollah. Just stirring the pot in the Middle East because they don't like the way it was going with which, which country was trying to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. That's what it was. Sorry. There's just so much going on. My brain's mush. (laughs) Yeah. And you can add any of any country in there because Egypt is normalizing relations because Jordan, Qatar, Qatar, all of that. Um, now, I do want to say I disagree with the you know, third world war will be a proxy war. Okay. I do think the major powers are going to go head to head physically. It's kind of um, looking that way. It is. I can be convinced otherwise <laughs> through yeah. actions in the future. Right. Because um, like I said, Iran is actually using those proxies to wage war on Israel and by association, the United States without getting the United States into the war. Uh, yeah. I just won't call it a third world war until we know what China's plans are for the timeline of invading Taiwan. Once that happens, I think it'll. So once China does that, I think that's going to be World War Three. Uh, if Russia Ukraine's still going and Israel Hamas conflicts are still going, well, do you still have China invading Taiwan in two thousand twenty four? Uh, I've got it at 2025, which means that the the buildup starts in 2024. So okay, so, so be a big year for this podcast. All right. So what makes you say that it will be officially World War Three if Russia, Ukraine, and Israel Hamas conflicts are still ongoing? Well, whenever at, at whenever that, China whenever China invades Taiwan, what yeah. makes you say that? So so at that point, I feel that's when the U.S. has to get involved militarily. 
And so you have the, the big three on one side. You've got China, Russia, Iran fighting against the U.S. and its Western allies. That's global war. That's officially a third world war. Well, do you think Iran gets involved militarily in the Israel-Hamas conflict? I'm not talking about using proxy forces. I'm asking if Iran will launch a full-scale attack on Israel. Yeah, that's a that's a tough assessment today to do because okay. typically Iran wouldn't want to get involved because it yeah. knows if it gets involved with Israel, the U.S. is jumping in because that's mm. Israel's ally. With all the public bluster, Iran's still afraid to wage a full war with the greatest military on the planet right now. Uh, they would have to do that, you know, fight against the U.S., but they'd also have to fight against a formidable, a formidable opponent in Israel. So that's another concern. Iran would need assurances from allies like China and Russia before it agreed to get involved physically into it. It also wouldn't make sense because that would allow for Israel to focus on the Gaza region alone. Right now, they're they're focusing on Gaza in the south, and then they're focusing on the north because Hezbollah is coming. So now, Israel would be able to focus on Gaza while the U.S. fights Hezbollah and Iran to the north. So just not a smart move for Iran, in my opinion. Okay, I know we've been <clears throat> discussing Middle Eastern conflicts, relations, and terrorism, etc., for a while today. But I want to ask you about this increase in terrorism globally. First, an attack in Brussels killed two Swedish nationals, and the person involved said he was motivated by ISIS. ISIS also confirmed that they were behind the attack. Now we have learned that a U.S. military base in Iraq was attacked. Do the recent attacks coincide with the recent horrific attack acts by Hamas and Israel, or do you think the two are just coincidences and have been planned separately? Because I know once the attack happened, they called for jihad. Right. Yeah, they said, and, and they keep calling for days of jihad. Right, and, um, you know, they're calling for a World War III and you right. know, all that stuff, right. And and you know me, I, I really don't like coincidences. I don't think there are coincidences. I think things happen, and it ramps up to that. So I don't think any of what is going on in the world is a coincidence, but I also don't think the two were planned to go to coincide with each other. So the way I see it is that Hamas attacked Israel, causing this tragic series of events in the region. And now other terror groups are carrying out either random or lone wolf attacks to show solidarity with their extremist allies. Now, make no mistake. I, I know at the beginning I said terrorism is back, but it never really left. Right. Like you said, with the war on drugs. It <laughs> I feel like never this is stopped. the second time I've used that. You did. Know. Yeah, it was a few months ago you did. Well, I don't know if it was a few months. I feel like it was a couple weeks ago. I feel like it was kind of recent. Well, I don't I know just, what time I, is. I need to come up with <laughs> new <laughs> new analogies. <laughs> what if, if it's a perfect analogy, you don't. Well. <laughs> I think that's exactly what's going on here. Um, so I, I do think that when the U.S. ended the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, it wasn't a mistake, but it kind of pulled resources from the Middle East. You couple that with China and Russia's increased role in Africa and the Middle East has really set the world up for more terror attacks. So we should always remain vigilant. And, and I think a lot of Western governments lost focus of that because honestly, there's so many other huge issues that are going on in the world. Right. Yeah, you know, we're, we're still reeling from the pandemic. Uh, a recession is here. 
I have not seen any evidence that we dodged a bullet in the the realm of a recession. Right. And then governments are having to make tough decisions right now. Uh, that's giving these terror groups an opportunity to plan attacks without the intelligence community stopping them or identifying their actions. Well, we will be talking about this for months, maybe even years. Mm -hmm. So I want to get to a recent election in a very volatile region. The Polish people voted this week to elect a new government. And I know you are really focused on these upcoming elections. So what can you tell us about the election in Poland? Oh, yeah. So this week, uh, pro-European Union opposition parties secured a majority in a historic shift after eight years of tensions between Poland and the European Union. So the Polish parliamentary election was honestly a game changer. The, the ruling Law and Justice Party, which is known as PIS, they came in first, but they lost their parliamentary majority. So the opposition parties, including uh, Civic Coalition, Third Way, and New Left, these are their more progressive pro-EU parties secured the majority, marking a significant shift in the geopolitical landscape. This is an important moment in Poland's history. Can you explain why this election is so significant? Yeah, so it, it's significant on multiple fronts. So first, it kind of signals a break from what people in Europe would call illiberal policies, so more socially conservative policies within the government. And that came from the PIS government. Um, and they, this included control. They want to take control over the judiciary and the media within Poland. The second, it honestly represents a setback for right-wing populism within the European Union. They had made some, so that ideology had made some gains within Europe. And now we're seeing a turn back from that. Uh, Poland had been viewed as part of a broader trend in Eastern Europe, and so this election suggests a shift in that trajectory. They're going back to their more liberal policies. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about the broader geopolitical implications of this. How will this change in leadership impact Poland's role in the European Union and its relationships with neighboring countries? Yeah, so the, the impact is twofold here. Poland's previous government had often clashed with the European Union over issues uh, that more European countries were focused on, uh, judicial independence and LGBTQ rights. Uh, the new leadership, which seems more aligned with EU values, is likely to seek smoother relations with Brussels. Poland had been pushed away from Brussels, which is kind of like the center for the EU. This could contribute to greater unity within the EU. Russia does not want to see that. I would caution that we could see a situation like we saw with Israel. If Poland uses this time to focus on inter internal social issues within the country, fighting within the media, uh, it could be a problem. The PIS heavily focused on Russian aggression for good reason, uh, and any variation from that could open up opportunities for Putin. So what I'm saying is the new government starts to focus internally on these social issues. Uh, it could give Putin an avenue to uh, to invade Poland. Because they're not paying attention to what's going on around them? Correct. Is that what you mean? Okay. And, and they're not focused militarily on what they should be focused on. Right. Now, listen, the outgoing government had experienced tensions with Ukraine already. Uh, and this is particularly regarding grain imports. We talked about that a few months ago. 
they had stopped grain imports from Ukraine and it was hurting the Ukrainians. The The new leadership, though, is expected to improve ties with Ukraine, its eastern neighbor. Uh, given Ukraine's ongoing conflict with Russia, this is going to be crucial for regional stability. I want to touch on something a little interesting. There were recent resignations of military generals in Poland. Did this have any impact on the election? Yeah, so we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, right? How that could have an impact. Um, it did add a layer of complexity to the political environment. You know, some believe, uh, or, or it was believed that some within the military were dissatisfied with the direction of the previous government. Uh, while it might not have been a primary factor in the election's outcome, I do think it does reflect a broader shift within Polish institutions. So it was more indicative of the changing sentiment within the country rather than a direct influence on the election results. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a reflection of evolving dynamics in Poland. Okay. The election outcome was primarily shaped by the broader political climate in the region and the enormous issues that are at stake. Okay, well, continuing the Russia talk, we had a fascinating development centered around the meeting between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese leader Xi Jinping in Beijing. So what can you tell us about that? Yes, Putin's journey to Beijing was a strategic pivot that stems from Russia's increasing isolation in the international arena because it invaded Ukraine. Uh, This isolation includes crippling economic sanctions, uh, also diplomatic backlash from the Western world. Make make no mistake, Russia really had a decent relationship with the West, uh, you know, even a decade ago. And that's all changing now. So this meeting essentially signifies Russia's search for new allies and economic partners. In a sense, it's it's a reminder that geopolitics is an ever shifting landscape. And a prime example of this shift is Putin's increasing reliance on China, right? I mean, he's been turning to Beijing for both economic and political support. Um, This pivot to the east is underpinned by the Belt and Road Initiative, a massive Chinese project connecting continents that we've discussed plenty over the last couple of years. But let's talk about the nitty gritty of these discussions. The Kremlin has been tight lipped about the specifics, of course, only mm-hmm. mentioning international and regional issues. So what do you think was on their agenda during their little meeting? Yeah, so there's a ton of ambiguity here coming from both sides, both Russia and China. We can presume Ukraine will be a crucial topic. It's, Putin's going to have to talk about that for maybe the rest of his life. Now, considering the ongoing conflict and Russia's need for diplomatic solutions, that would probably be the main talking point. Uh, Additionally, the Indo-Pacific region is teeming with security and economic concerns, uh, which probably found its way into the discussion. And then let's not forget the Israel-Gaza conflict, which, though you, you would think is unrelated, it could indirectly affect the tone and direction of these talks. Russia and China took the side of what they would say is Palestinians, um, but they didn't come out and say Hamas did a terrible thing. So that's something to keep an, an eye on. So this visit marked Putin's first major visit to a global power since the Ukrainian conflict began. So that's a very important distinction this week that he might be uh, branching out to get support. 
this visit, so the visit is a statement in and of itself. It means something's going wrong because he needs that economic backing from China. And it signifies a high-level engagement between Russia and China. Well, obviously, because they met up in person. (laughs) Yeah. And he wasn't arrested. Yeah, well, of course he wasn't arrested. Because he's a war criminal. Right, 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 right. So, Craven, thank you for all of that. Is that all you have for this week? That's it for me, unless you had anything you wanted to add. No, I think I'm good. All right. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it both informative and engaging. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakland Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there.